If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. Scholar Scott McKnight argued that the Christian attitude toward trials and suffering is legendary. But must we suffer? And if so, how do we do it well? Before my wife Abby and I got married... We lived on separate sides of the country, and when I had these brief gaps in my otherwise crowded calendar year of traveling and playing music, I would scrape together all the money that I had to buy plane tickets from Georgia to Washington State. And since I loved movies and collected movies, and since this was a pre-streaming era when one could only get access to a movie by either buying it or renting them from the local rental warehouse, Abby would ask me, bring some of your movies when you come. Back then, Abby liked movies as much as the next casual moviegoer. She probably resents that term, but there it is. Mostly what she did when we watched movies is fell asleep. So her sister, Hannah, on the other hand, did like movies more than Abby. So Hannah and I would end up watching stacks of DVDs. This is also a pre-Blu-ray era. And Abby would just fall asleep. Now, when someone finds out that you really love movies and that you own hundreds of movies and all genres and all eras, well, from the 60s to the present, because I mostly hate pre-60s cinema. Yeah, that's right. Singing in the rain and meet me in St. Louis. Take a hike, Judy Garland. If you introduce someone to a library of hundreds of movies uh, in the pre-Netflix era, a library spanning several decades, every conceivable genre, many curious browsers will gravitate toward the horror movies, even if they don't like them, because horror is kind of a curiosity. We're cautiously inquisitive. When my brother and I were kids, uh, we'd dare one another to lift the, the VHS boxes in the horror section of our local video rental house and look at the images on the back of the box. Now, the back of the box usually offered a couple of thumbnails from the movie itself, and we would dare ourselves, well, what will they show? Can we handle what's on the back of the box? So, circa 2005, when Abby and Hannah would ask me, bring movies when you come visit, they would say, bring a scary one. So I tried. Over many visits, I tried. I brought them the scariest movies in my collection. I showed them The Exorcist and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I showed them Night of the Living Dead and Alien. And mostly they yawned. Mostly they said, that wasn't scary. Or they'd say, that was old. And maybe they'd say this or that scene was startling or icky, but not scary. And one of my last attempts to satisfy their scare curiosity was Clive Barker's 1987 supernatural horror film, Hellraiser. Now, when the credits rolled, Abby and both of her sisters all said, turn on the lights. <laughs> For reasons that no one could place at the moment, everyone had been thoroughly bothered 
by Hellraiser. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to recommend or tell you about Hellraiser other than to get where I'm going with all this, which is this. The movie, the long and short of it is the movie involves a puzzle box that summons beings from another dimension that cannot differentiate between pain and pleasure. And one of the film's most infamous quotes is, ah, the suffering, the sweet, sweet suffering. And this is why I think Hellraiser was so bothersome. What's scarier than boogeymen and aliens and zombies? Pain. Because for all our post-enlightenment suspicions of the supernatural world, the unknowability of deep space, the unbelievability of monsters, pain, we know, is real. Unfettered, chaotic suffering is terrifying. And this occurred to me this week, sitting over my desk, leaning over scholarly commentaries on the first century letter that we call James. Because the author of the letter, who in English we tend to call James, but whose name is actually Jacob, it's a long story, listen to last week's podcast, he opens his letter with the concept of suffering, which seems like a weird place to start. And what he has to say about suffering is even more disconcerting. The early church was, uh, or it had a well-publicized history of persecution. For the first few centuries of the Jesus movement, Christians were persecuted, prosecuted, and even martyred in droves. And yet, the Jesus movement was known for both its peaceful nonviolence and its resilience. Today, so-called Christians have public breakdowns and meltdowns when asked politely to wear a small square of fabric over their nose and mouth for a few minutes inside a grocery store. But for hundreds of years, Christians fearlessly confronted imprisonment, torture, and death while blessing their enemies in the process. The first disciples of Jesus refused to take up arms. They refused violent self-defense. They refused to go to war for Rome or against Rome. They refused to fight or kill or campaign. And yet, in the face of all that violent, oppressive pushback over this tiny grassroots movement, the Christian movement proliferated across the ancient Mediterranean. And there are lots of reasons why. There was the Christian approach to hospitality, an infectious spirit that spread throughout homes and dinner tables. There was reconciliation and justice, the radical Christian approach to enemy love across social and racial boundaries, manifesting itself in concern for the poor and the oppressed and the outcast. And of course, there was the empty tomb. If Jesus had not been raised back to life, then his followers would have been guilty of knowingly deceiving themselves and others, and yet they had nothing to gain from the lie except for ostracization, persecution, and potentially death And this kind of credibility was infectious. Christians were dying for what they believed was true. And they would know if it weren't true, the tomb was right there. So scholars argue that another note in the symphony of this burgeoning alternative society was the way that it suffered. In his commentary on James, scholar Scott McKnight wrote, the Christian attitude toward trials and suffering is legendary. I read that this week and wrote it down. And then I read it again. The Christian attitude toward trials and suffering is legendary. Jacob wrote the letter we call James into a world of not just persecution, but severe famine at the time. It had been rough for the early Christians in Jerusalem. And so he begins his letter this way. Let's stand together as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of Scripture and read James chapter 1 beginning with verse 2. 
Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now me, I drink oat milk and I drive a 2007 Prius. What does someone like me know about suffering? Is that, is that a fair question? It depends on who you ask. The truth is, though it takes many shapes, every human being experiences suffering. And no one wants to hear this. No matter what precautions you take to avoid the lurking phantom of suffering, suffering will find you. No matter how hard you work or how healthy you become or how wonderful your family is, something could ruin everything you've built. No amount of spiritual maturity or good behavior will save you from suffering, though we tend to assume the opposite is true. No amount of planning or finances or attempted control can stave off bereavement, sickness, betrayal, financial ruin, or an innumerable host of troubles and tragedies that come creeping into your comfort and security to needle the bubble of your otherwise happy little life. And on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. Comfortable or otherwise, you and everyone you love will die. And Christians know this on some level, but we struggle to make sense of it because as far as we can tell, we're being asked to believe two things many of us cannot bear to reconcile. Consider suffering pure joy, Jacob wrote. That word consider is a Greek word used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the way or the work of looking through rather than at present circumstances towards something on the other side of it all. And Jacob is tapping into this will of the Christian movement of God's people throughout history to eye present circumstances, especially dire and seemingly hopeless ones, through the window of future hope informed by the character and goodness of God. Now you, listener, you're either offended by this or you're bored with its sentimentality because decades of comfortable American Christianity has accomplished blundering marvels in the name of excusing suffering from polite table conversation. Suffering inconveniences us with its reminders of our own mortality and fragility, and we don't know how to sit with the suffering of others, let alone our own suffering. And so American Christianity has pressure washed the world of the early church from the Bible's troublesome passages on pain and trials. We don't want to hear about nonviolent, apolitical first century Christianity. We don't want to hear about radical generosity or social justice in the face of persecution and oppression. We don't want to hear about peaceful resilience unto death. And we sure as heck don't want to hear considerate pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And rather than reframing present suffering in the context of future glory, 
We either rush for the escape hatch or else sweep all our misery into the junk drawer of God's mysterious plan. And I blame Paul, really. In Romans, Paul writes this, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do we know that? Is that true? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. A few years ago, a young man showed up at our church, uh, and he got involved. He was, at the same time, somewhat secretly preparing for a very dangerous trip. Unbeknownst to a lot of people in our community, this guy had lots of experience traveling the world, telling people in all sorts of different cultures about Jesus, and he had been in training and preparation for about a decade for his journey to an island in India that was home to an indigenous people in voluntary isolation with whom he had long hoped to share the story of Jesus. So he prayed, and he trained, and he, he planned, he prepared. And because the trip was, the journey was dangerous and illegal, most of the people in our church didn't even know about it until the third day of his visit to the island when we learned with the rest of the world that the tribe had already killed him. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And a story like that is easy to romanticize. Young, intrepid missionary travels to distant land compelled by the love of Jesus who died in his effort to further the gospel. But his parents didn't think it was so beautiful. When one of the pastors at our church last spoke to his mother, she was in such a state of shock, she refused to believe that her son had died at all, saying that maybe if she just kept praying, he would come home. His father, on the other hand, told media outlets that he blamed Christianity itself for his son's death, that his brainwashed son had followed the lunacy of the movement to its natural conclusion and paid the price. And however incredible this young man's resolve may have been, the truth is that before his final visit to the island, one of the last things he would ever write in a letter to his family was this prayer, God, I don't want to die. And the story proliferated, making international headlines, and the young man was depicted as everything from a naive Instagrammer to an evil colonist, so that strangers could come together in their ridicule and condemnation while his body remained somewhere on that island. And there were, to our current knowledge, no converts. As far as we can tell, the gospel was never even preached. He's, he died. His parents lost their son. The island remains ignorant to the gospel. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And that is an extraordinary story. But you know this story too, because though we tend to qualify and quantify degrees of suffering and thus the legitimacy of one person's suffering over and against another person's suffering, really everybody suffers. And that extraordinary story exemplifies what many of you already know all too well, that though we can say and sing in all things God works for the good, life often defies us to believe it. Those of you who have known pain well know also the way we Christians, unable or unwilling to behold the horrible face of suffering, rush instead to usher it from the room with our hasty, half-baked veneer of optimism. But look, some good stuff happened too. And isn't God so good? And who are we to complain? 
as if whatever nice thing that blossomed from the awfulness of the tragedy, the death, the disease, is some consolation prize that can be won only by our misery. Now hurry up and feel good about it. Sing a song. Tell us an inspiring little story, dang it. Do something. When really, what we want to say isn't a statement at all, but a question. Why? And the Bible has answers, but not simple ones, and this is also frustrating. Now, before we make it back to James, let's build a basic overview for suffering and evil. Three things. Are you guys still with me? Great, thank you. The physical and spiritual realms, freedom, and chaos. Watch this. Here's what you have to deal with. First, all of this begins on a cosmic scale. The setup for the Bible's epic narrative is of two distinct but overlapping realities, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. The former, a world of matter, crude materials, plants, animals, people. The latter, of unseen spiritual creatures and domains. But both realms are populated by very real living beings with the power to interact with and affect both dimensions of reality, for better or for worse. The physical, the physical world can affect the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm can affect the spirit, uh, physical realm. Now, that sounds weird to us, maybe, but the Bible just takes this for granted. It presents a consistent portrait of human beings who can communicate with the God of the universe in the spiritual realm, even compel him to act. We, in the physical world, can interrupt and thwart the activity of evil spirits, or we can stir angelic beings that we cannot see to action with our words and deeds. And it works the other way as well. Spiritual beings in the unseen realm can come to the aid of human beings, or, or they can conspire against them to do them harm. All of this is in the scriptures from cover to cover. Because in the same way that there are human and spiritual beings on God's side, there are human and spiritual beings set against God. How could that possibly be? Because we get to pick... In the Bible story, human beings have been created with agency, meaning freedom to do what they want. And spiritual beings have given, been given that same autonomy. Why? Couldn't God just get what he wants by exercising unilateral control over creation? Well, sure, but then there would be no authentic relationship whatsoever. There would be no collaboration, no love. And with all this grand God-given decision-making prowess, both us and these spiritual beings in the spiritual realm have screwed this place up. I don't mind telling you it's a terrible mess, the world. Have you been in it lately? Just awful. And it started a really long time ago. Jesus put it this way. You belong to your father, the devil, he tells corrupt religious leadership. You want to carry out your father's desires. Listen to this. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that line, he was a murderer from the beginning, means the very beginning. The New Testament, the early church fathers and mothers, the first Christians, and the early disciples of Jesus uniformly argued that spiritual beings, like humans, were created free and that they, like humans, were given influence and responsibility in the world. And like humans, some of us use said influence to tear this place apart. Our world, our lives, our own souls are broken. They're bent out of shape, bent away from what is true and good and toward that which destroys us and other people. And it gets worse. 
You know from experience that a single act of evil, even a very simple one like a cutting word or a fractured relationship or a lie, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has consequences. And the same is true on a cosmic scale. Simple actions set in motion ripples in the water of the universe, as it were, and those ripples intersect with other ripples. One bad decision affects a moment, affects a life, affects a generation. And now, because our world is broken and ravaged by evil, we are often caught in the crossfire of that fallout. Complicated, purposeless chaos. So there you go. The physical and spiritual realms, freedom and chaos. It's a mess. And it is a mess with lasting, complex, chaotic consequences. So at least on a biblical theological level, you might answer the question, why do we suffer? One of four ways. We suffer because of our own choices or because of the choices someone else makes or a combination of the two or consequences from both, both indirect and direct. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that when we suffer, it's always our fault. Sometimes choices are direct. Sometimes, on the other hand, they're abstracted from the decision maker. So why do children suffer abuse from their parents? Because their parents abuse them. That's direct. Why are children in other countries enslaved and abused? Because some shopper on the other side of the world wants to shop at H&M and Nike. That's abstracted from the decision maker. The mess that we're in is a complex web of choices of physical and spiritual forces. We also suffer because we, that is the world, just don't want God. We don't believe that his way is best, not really. And we don't believe that he wants what is best for us, which is a cruel irony because we receive God's wise, loving guidance as restrictive and oppressive and foolishly run from that which gives life and toward that which kills. We are broken, bent away from what is good and holy and toward that which is sinful and destructive. We suffer because the cosmos itself is at war and we are caught in the crossfire of an ancient battle between good and evil. God, angels, demons, evil spirits, sickness and death, natural evil, hurricanes, tsunamis. Creation itself, Paul writes, is groaning to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And finally, embrace yourself for this one. We suffer for no good reason at all. Despite the many Christian funeral pep talks we've endured and platitudes on the lips of well-meaning bystanders to our tragedies, suffering is not inherently meaningful. Not every tragedy becomes a beautiful redemption story. Suffering itself can be arbitrary, cruel, and meaningless. On the opening pages of his memoir, Once More We Saw Stars, Jason Green wrote about the day that his two-year-old daughter was sitting outside on a bench with her grandmother in front of their family's apartment building. A brick came loose from a windowsill above her head, fell, and killed the girl. No one threw the brick. Had it fallen moments earlier or moments later, it would have hit an empty bench and crumbled. But it didn't. It hit the little girl. Maybe if one person who had interacted with that brick over the many years before it fell had done so differently, it wouldn't have been loose or it would have fallen at some other time. But it didn't. 
And then out came a tidal wave of grief and agony as if from a burst dam, and there was and is no person or thing on which to set all that pain. It happened for no good reason at all. Meaningless, indifferent chaos. Why and how it happens aside, suffering is inevitable. So what do we do? There are a few popular reactions to pain and grief and tragedy. First, we tend to mitigate the pain. The modern Western world is perhaps least equipped to confront the reality of suffering. Brands and corporations are poised on all sides to provide you with innumerable methods of staving off the horror of hardship. We have seat belts and airbags for the car wreck. We have insurance for the flood and fire, vitamins and exercise for your immune system. And those things aren't inherently bad. Why not mitigate hardship and minimize suffering if you can? Wear your seatbelt by all means. But the thing is, no matter how clever the hiding place, suffering will find us eventually. And what then? We can avoid it or deny it. Mortified, many of us barrel after medication and distraction, social media for curating your image and fighting off the insecurities and loneliness, streaming services and pornography for the isolation and existential dread, some relationship or some career as our last great hope to find meaning and satisfaction in the face of the all-consuming void, or fabricate a smile, a superficial rictus to wear like a mask of religious triumph. We're still joyful. We still believe. We don't feel a thing, anything, but face the suffering head on. And when the, the balsa wood columns of mitigation and avoidance crack and crumble, we can despair. Despair is a coping mechanism I know very well. The point at which the sufferer becomes intoxicated by their own pain, unwilling to climb up from or be lifted and carried out of life's mire of agony. Thomas Merton wrote that despair is the absolute extreme of self-love. It is reached when a person deliberately turns his back on all help from anyone else in order to taste the rotten luxury of knowing himself to be lost. Ah, uh, yes, this I know very well. See, the rubric by which we assess one's eligibility to comment on human suffering is these days no longer experiential in the specific sense. It's about identity. It's a question worth asking. Who gets to talk about what? Who should comment on suffering in the big, broad sense? Not all pain is the same. This is very true. But something that my therapist used to tell me often is this, pain is pain. The last eight or so years of my life have been pretty different from the 30 years that came before them. Sure, I made it to 30 with the same cuts and scrapes and bruises that all of us endure by the simple virtue of the human condition, but mostly I had it pretty good. No tragic movie backstory. And then about nine years ago or so, my dad came to visit me after my first kid was born. He caught the flu while he was visiting, and after a long, miserable roller coaster ride in the ICU, he died. And then not long after that, my wife's dad got cancer and withered away before our eyes. And with no cinematic, you know, tragedy in either of our early years, both of us were left not only, not, not really knowing how one grieves. And this stupid thing that had happened to both of us should have, we thought, brought us together. And instead it became a wedge 
between us. And at the same time, I had finally reached a point when decades of my mostly private self-loathing had reached a fever pitch, and I entered a season so dark and so bleak that I came very close, dangerously close to giving up. It was a strange, ever-present pain wrought by extreme hatred of the self, aggravated, I believe, by demonic forces, indulged by my own selfish tendency toward nihilism. In Thomas Merton's words, to taste the rotten luxury of knowing myself to be lost. And maybe you'd scoff thinking of, you know, the way my precious little life compared to someone else's seems practically utopian, and maybe you'd be right. But I can tell you with integrity, it hurt. I was in pain. And it doesn't mean that my pain was as important or legitimate or even equal to the suffering of someone else. It just means that all of us experience pain. I went through a few very difficult years of therapy and counseling and mentoring, spiritual formation, inner healing prayer, and I experienced incredible breakthrough and healing and relief. And today, those dark years seem to me almost as if they happened to another person. And as I wrote this teaching, I thought about the shifting phantasm of pain and suffering and seasons of life. Today, right now anyway, I'm doing pretty good. My marriage and family are not perfect by any means, but mostly healthy and thriving. I'm trying to follow Jesus where he leads in this season and stage of my discipleship to him. But things can still hurt. It doesn't seem like much compared to where I've been. And where I've been doesn't seem like much compared to someone who's been through other things. But here we all are, each of us discovering new ways to hurt, things we didn't prepare for, couldn't prepare for. So what else do we do but mitigate or avoid or despair? We, as disciples of Jesus, have been taught to turn to God in the throes of our pain. So to end tonight, I want to ask a couple of questions. First, how does God re respond to pain and suffering. Think of Paul's words again. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Do we know that? Is that true? Before we can answer it, let's start with this. As we built that paradigm of causation, the physical and spiritual realms, freedom, chaos, notice God's mysterious purposes were not among the causes of your suffering. God does not determine or will or ordain the evil that brings about suffering. He did not guide the brick that killed the two-year-old girl. He did not infect my dad with the flu. He did not nurture the cancer growing inside my father-in-law. He did not sow in me seeds of self-hatred and suicide. The world is broken, broken from our own decisions, the decisions of others, a cosmic ancient war, and why would he wire the universe this way? Well, the short answer is the great risk of love. So imagine a man and a woman that thoughtfully, prayerfully choose to bring children into the world. That's something that my wife and I did. We talked about it. We planned. We prayed. We made a conscious decision. And I thought a lot about the inevitability of my children's suffering, that I could not know how great it would be, how hard their lives might become, I knew that even if I did my very best, my very best would not stave off each and every tragedy that awaited them. I knew all that. I thought about it a lot, prayed about it a lot, and chose to have kids anyway. And I do not regret it. Any half-decent parent 
will tell you that if it were somehow possible, they would gratefully take their children's suffering onto themselves just to spare them the pain. I would. And yet, my love for my children is so profound, even in the finite limitations of my humanity, that no suffering can make me wish to undo this arrangement, that I brought them into this world just to love them. I am not a better dad than God. So God has entered our mess. The scriptures use this recurring metaphor for pain as a refining fire. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Pain has the unique potential to change or to grow or to mature you. God can use the awful thing neither he nor you wanted to deepen your love and dependence on him, to enrich and mature your character, to grow you in compassion and humility, and even, ironically, to teach you new dimensions of joy and peace that flow not from ephemeral contentment or comfort, but from the ever-accessible peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Now, God does not require your suffering to enrich and mature you. But he is good enough and intelligent enough and creative enough to enter into your suffering and repurpose it for your good and for the good of other people. Though not necessarily. One person endures the death of a parent or a divorce or cancer or war, and they come out on the other side deeply connected to God, humbled, at peace, kind, more mature than ever before. Another person goes through the same things and comes out angry, embittered, depressed, addicted, never regains his or her traction in life. What's the difference? How we respond to our suffering. Jacob pleads with a church in pain. Look through the window of your agony to the good God who can and will bring out of that pain goodness. That the pain that he does not ordain, that he does not will or plan or determine, but can and will use to do you good if you let him. And notice Jacob pleads, if you don't have the wisdom to envision the repurposing of your suffering, just ask God for it. He will give it to you without finding fault. And then believe. Now, many can't help but read Jacob's charge to believe and not doubt as if it's unrealistic and insensitive, as if God will withhold the hope of wisdom from those too broken and bedraggled by their pain to muster the faith necessary for help. But that's not at all what Jacob means. He is insisting on relational engagement. The temptation of many, myself absolutely included, when we hurt, is to objectify God 
and his alleged absenteeism, our anger venting out toward other people. Where was God? Why didn't God help me? Put another way, we talk about God, not to God. And James does not mean believe and not doubt as an unrealistic gesture of intellectual certainty. He means the ancient, mystic, Hebrew sense of relational covenantal love. Don't just believe in God, believe with God. Or put another way, suffer with God. And to do something like that, we need each other. We need the church. Belong to this family, your brothers and sisters. Bring your pain to the table of community, to the sanctuary of worship. Mourn with those who mourn. Walk with one another. Hold one another up. Do not hide. Sit with other people. Talk to them. Counselors, therapists, pastors, friends. Do not retreat, hide, or despair in the face of your pain. Face it. Do not succumb to the skulking predators of bitterness and hatred. Do not allow yourself to be absorbed by self-pity or despair. Hurt, but do not give in to the hurt. Stare into the ugly face of your suffering and let your family see it. Your brothers and sisters, learn to let each other hurt without rushing to whisk it away with songs and empty fortune cookie promises. Hurt. Let one another hurt without being destroyed or warped by it. Let one another hurt. Then pick each other up and walk one another toward healing. And in all this, bring your pain to God. God knows a lot about pain about your pain, and he hates it. He does not tempt you or trick you or hurt you just to teach you a lesson. He does not decree the suffering and abuse of children, the death of good people or bad people to accomplish his mysterious purposes as if God were so narrow and flimsy as being a being as to require bad things just to get good things done. God does not hit you and maim you and confuse you to try to draw you near to him, reducing his shivering followers to the fretful, hand-wringing obedience of Stockholm Syndrome. And yet we, in all our collective misery, heap protest and outrage upon God as one presenting our bruised and broken visage, the shuffling bone heap of our life-wearied bodies to God, asking, why have you done this to me? And in response, God himself climbs down from the imminent invincibility of heaven. He steps through the death-laden veil of mortality and hurt and into the mess that we made because the all-powerful creator God of the universe, the holy and supreme being that Jesus called by the tender intimacy of Abba, Father, this God above and beyond the death-obsessed filth of our selfishness, our vandalism of all that is good, he decreed, no matter what they've done to me, to themselves, or to one another, I will love them, and I will pursue them unto death. 
and I will voluntarily lower myself into the depths of human corruption that they would not suffer alone, that their hurt would not last forever, and that I might save them from themselves. So, hurt, and hurt with the God who suffers, the God who entered this awful world more lowly than most of us can imagine, born not amongst royalty, but cradled by a poor teenager, fanning flies from his blood-streaked face, breathing deep the fetid stench of livestock and manure, that rather than retreat to the heavenly domain to which he was entitled, the feet of God were caked in the dirt of our broken world. And he hurt like the rest of us. And he watched with human eyes as the people he loved died, as injustice and oppression rang out like a terrible chorus over his family and friends, that he, he bandaged broken skin like the rest of us, that he was tired and hungry, and that he even despaired his own mortality and the agony that awaited his mortal flesh, that he was abandoned and betrayed by those he loved, that he was humiliated, reduced to a naked, quaking, blood-sodden object upon a Roman device of torture and death, while his own mother was made to watch her beloved son succumb to sepsis and shock and could do nothing to ease his unimaginable torment. Would we really allow our hearts to harden and embitter beneath the fire of our suffering, railing against God as if he were that privileged person unworthy to speak to our pain? Would we really speak to this God as if he is indifferent to pain and suffering, as if he cannot imagine what it means for us to hurt? This God who suffered willingly in solidarity with his beloved to set them free from their suffering. Plans he chooses to accomplish. Would, he, would we really tremble before this God as if it were he himself who struck us down in his arbitrary capriciousness, our pain only a footnote in the grand scheme of his big important plans? plans that he chooses to accomplish using the abuse of children and the cancer and the bones of your loved ones or the head-on collision or the falling brick? Does not the good and loving God know this pain and hate these things more than we in our sinful brokenness can begin to imagine? And will not the good and loving God have the final say in the story of our pain? Yes, he is speaking now. Yes, today God does subvert evil and he does repurpose our suffering, but that is not the last nor greatest chapter in this story. For even as he subverts evil and repurposes our suffering, we still die. Jesus raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. His once miraculous form went moldering in the dirt, as will ours. But that is not the end of the story. For today, as chaos reigns and the serpent has his say, the death, death towers over us as a hulking inevitability. God himself reminds us in King Jesus, this will not last for long. And he promises us a coming day. Because Jesus suffered, he can declare that that day is coming. No longer will the news media bury us beneath stories of suffering and discord and despair. 
where now in the world our clothes and our coffee come on the wearied backs of human slaves, where materialism drains our lives of depth and peace, where pornography tangles the brains of children and where children are trafficked to make pornography. We're now in the world we are bombarded with images of flashing machine gun muzzles and erupting bombs, the bruised and malnourished faces of helpless children, of stories in which foster children are bound and entombed in freezers, of infants beaten and violated, of cancer and HIV, of car crashes and miscarriages and hurricanes and tsunamis, war criminals and pedophiles. There is a coming day when Jesus, the serpent-crushing king of the world, will say no more of this. And the abusers of children will never hurt another child. And God will bind and still the fists of every man standing over every crying, battered woman. God will topple the systems of power and injustice that made so many voiceless and invisible. And those who were terrorized by the world, the abused and the oppressed, the sick, the poor, those forgotten by all the world and left to their suffering, God himself will take them in his arms and he will wipe every tear from every eye and suffering itself will be no more. And to the abusers and the victimizers, the powerful, the predators, God will decree, you will never put your hands on another child ever again. You who used your power against the weak and vulnerable will be made powerless forever. And you, the snake who leads the world astray, you will be destroyed. And on that day, he will do more than subvert or repurpose all of our pain. He will eradicate evil, tear it up by the roots from all of creation. And even though we made this mess, God will rescue us from it once and for all. More than a personal escape to the clouds, God's ultimate end is the complete and utter undoing of every wrong and every evil. God's ultimate purpose in creation is that the world he once created good will be utterly restored, a place in which on earth as it is in heaven is answered in full. So, hurt. Hurt before God and hurt with God and hope that our hope would ring out in defiance of the evil one. You have hurt us and deceived us, and now we break and now we die, but we will yet mock you because the day is coming. We hope not in a predestined purpose for our pain, but in the wisdom of God to do us good even in our suffering and in the power of God to one day bring all of our suffering to an end, that we may somehow consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever we face trials of many kinds. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church give.